0: and as you can imagine you know latin america is not an easy place for preaching that kind of a discipline you had to make sure that you recruited the right people in other words people who had absolutely no qualm with principles and you can detect that very early on mm-hmm. and you just repeat and repeat and repeat and once again show by example we always said in latin america of all places, you cannot give in even once for one minute, because the moment you set the precedent, you're lost. That's it.
1: Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders,
2: mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the P&G Alumni Podcast. I'm Roman Segel, Recovering Marketer.
1: And I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. Roman and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow P&G alums,
2: we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know, but want to know more about. It's kind of like being a fly on the wall for my mentoring coffees. On today's show, we're talking to PNG
1: alumni leader Jorge Montoya, Gap and Kroger board director, and former president of all of Latin America for Procter and Gamble.
2: Yeah, it was such a good conversation with Jorge about not just doing the right thing in and out of work, but also about developing leaders. Yeah, which is is something
1: that he's really known for. Here's um here's a quick bio on Jorge. He currently serves on the boards of Gap Inc. and Kroger and he spent most of his career at P&G. Montoya was president of P&G's Latin America in the global snacks and beverage division, having spent 30 years rising through the ranks of Procter & Gamble. His expertise is well beyond the Hispanic market, including pretty much all of international business. He was named among the 50 most important Hispanics in business and technology in the Hispanic Engineer and Information Technology magazine. He earned a BS in mechanical engineering and an MBA from the University of California, Berkeley, where he was also an All-American NCAA soccer player. He and his wife, Costanza, have a private foundation to support underserved children's education in Peru and Venezuela.
2: Wow. that's But wait, hang on. He was a college soccer player, Drew?
1: Yeah, he was a college soccer player. That's like legit. I played soccer you know, growing up, I don't know if you did, but I, I played soccer growing up and I made it to like high school varsity. And I couldn't go beyond that because my teammates told me I ran like a praying mantis. <laughs> like My arms were up. It was, or kind of like doe-like. And anytime someone kicked the ball kind of near me, I would jump up and do a like 360 turn or 180 degree turn. So the ball didn't hit me in the, the front. Like it was, it was good for high school. I was not good enough for college. That's like legit.
2: Nice. Uh, I really enjoy soccer, is what I'd say. As a guy who's kind of a fake sports fan, I call it, you know, hashtag sports ball. Um, Well, I don't watch a lot of sports on TV. And let's be clear, it's called football, not soccer. (laughs) It is the one sport I actively have always tried to play. Um, In high school, in college, rec league, obviously, I'm not good at all. But I enjoy playing it. And I have a daughter um, who's only a few years old. But it's something we do in the backyard because I figure, hey, the other half of America, Latin America plays it. And I figure start now. So when she starts backpacking around the world, she's got an edge. Yeah, no, that's fair. And, and when world cup time comes
1: around, she can celebrate with the rest of the world. Cause that is one fun cultural event. But you, you mentioned, yeah, the other half of America, uh, you know, South America, I haven't spent much time
2: there. Have you traveled through Latin America? Yeah. Yeah. All over. It's, um, Obviously, it's a little more accessible to us on this side of the world um, versus some of the other parts. But I've I've been all over, not with my kid yet. I plan to take her down um, soon. But, you know, yeah, I've been all over Ecuador, Nicaragua, Argentina, Venezuela. Yeah, I just I love going down there. The food, the culture, every few hundred miles, the culture changes, even though the language is the same. It's great.
1: Well, I mean, I imagine that you've been down there because you even say the names of the country correctly instead of, you know, the the harder you know Ohio voice sound that I've got of of saying Nicaragua Nicaragua <laughs> can't even can't even say it um, but then, no that's that's pretty impressive I thought at first you're gonna say like oh I've been to Mexico which is like ah I don't know that fully counts
2: for all of that but Venezuela well let's be clear uh, Venezuela I went before the current situation I I have this habit of going to countries just a few years before so basically uh, keep an eye on the countries I've been to because it goes in the tank after I visit, but no, it, you know, my trip to Venezuela is such a great story about the power of PNG people. When I started my first year at the company, a coach of mine, a guy who's on my digital marketing team, this guy Ali, he was from Venezuela, him and his wife started their careers there and came up to Cincinnati. And every year for the holidays, In December, they would go down to Venezuela and work from the Venezuela office and then obviously go spend the week of Christmas and New Year's with their family. And so when he told me about this, he's like, yeah, man, you should just totally come down. And I was a young, single guy. So I asked my boss, do you mind if I do that? He's like, yeah, go ahead. As long as you get your work done. So I got on a flight to Caracas, Venezuela with my colleague, Ale, his wife, their young baby. I stayed with his wife's family for the holidays. And you know, ate meals with them, went out with their friends, but I worked in the office every day. I even got to go to the office Christmas party, and some of my best ex-PNG friends were from that trip, right? And yeah, it's just it was such a great trip. Uh, It's such a great country, such great people, and and that speaks to the it's everywhere in the world. But I just felt so warm and welcome uh, in Latin America.
1: Yeah, well, and I think that's one of you know, again, when when people talk about PNG and it's like all about the people. That's an example of. Uh, you know, specifically the value of the people. And that, I think, is something that, you know, Jorge really kind of focused his time on was developing people.
2: Yeah, I mean, he is one of p gs most revered leaders. The one other story, and this one's about Jorge, before I even actually met him, I remember going to my first P&G Alumni Global Conference in, I think it was in Miami, several years ago, and he was speaking and being honored. And it was really impressive when I found and met so many people that had worked on his teams across the years. They flew in to reconnect with him specifically. He was the reason they were there. He's a class act, man. He's, he's one of the greats. Yeah,
1: and, and from the the interview, you can really kind of understand why. And, and that's what I love. Kind of perhaps the most is the accomplishment that he's most proud of is that he was able to create this reputation of Latin America talent for around the world, not just for P&G, but for other companies that P&Gers have gone into. So I know people are going to really enjoy the insights, the lessons, the wisdom from Jorge. So uh, let's jump right in. Jorge, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us.
0: Thank you. Great having this conversation with you, Drew.
1: Excellent. And so our audience is mostly mid-career professionals like me, trying to navigate the balance of work and life. and making certain career decisions and all that. And I know hearing from you and your experiences will will be very valuable to them. So I want to jump right in. So you know, many may already know your professional story. You grew up in Peru. You graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering and an MBA from Cal Berkeley. You had a 30-year career at P&G, starting in brand assistant in Peru, uh, moving around a little bit, working your way up to the president of global snacks and beverages in Latin America uh, while there and now certainly with some of the work that you're doing as a board director. But I'm curious, before kind of jumping into all that, when you're growing up in Peru, was the career that you ended up having the type of career you imagined you would have as a kid? Like, what did 10-year-old
0: Jorge want to be? Uh, Not not really. I mean, it certainly wasn't even in my thoughts. Um, uh, I grew up, you know, it's a small town, actually, in the second city of Peru. Uh, I just wanted to be an engineer, and I wanted to have a comfortable life, you know, probably. But mm-hmm. didn't even think outside of Peru to tell you the truth. When I was ten years old, or even twelve or fourteen, that came later when I, you know, the opportunity came to come to Berkeley and study engineering. Then, obviously, it started to open up the horizons as to what possible to to get into. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, obviously, one of the things that I sort of saw in the guide is, was there a path that could have taken me somewhere else? And yes, there was. I could have Mm -hmm. gone into getting a master's in mechanical engineering, getting into research, and probably I would have ended up being some kind of an academician in research and doing something for engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I chose sort of like the uh, moral obligation, so to speak, mm-hmm. to go back and work in Peru. And I figured that with a master's or even a PhD in engineering in Peru, I wasn't going to do much. I mean, you know, theres there aren't that kind of uh, research facilities or opportunities. So uh, the opportunity to get an MBA opened up. And obviously, that's what I chose. And mm-hmm. here I am. So... <laughs> It, that's pretty much what uh, it boiled down to.
1: Yeah, and so that's that's fascinating. So do you remember kind of the experience of the opportunity to go to Berkeley? Were you familiar with California as a place coming from Peru? Like, what was that decision to say, hey, I'm going to leave, uh, you know, even my home, not let alone home country, but my home continent and study somewhere else? What was that like?
0: Well, I, I guess I have to, you know, give credit that to one of my older brothers. I'm, I'm the fifth in a family mm-hmm. and actually um, 10 years younger than the fourth. So I had seen the fourth do that sort of like he did sort of like the homework for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I saw him graduate from Berkeley, great school for engineering. So that's how I learned about California and, and Berkeley. So, you know, that's the path that I follow. So uh, as I said, yeah. my brother went there first
1: nice so you kind of paved the way show what was what was possible probably you know made the the process a little bit easier you had someone that you could kind of see that had had done that and so you go to berkeley and that was an interesting thing that you mentioned though you felt this obligation to go back to peru and that played as part of your decision so is that did that kind of come up as you you know you're graduating with the degree in mechanical engineering and deciding do you go phd and go into it deeper or you go the the MBA route. And so it was very, and so it seemed like you were very conscious of having a clear plan of going back to Peru afterwards to kind of take what you had learned and return back to where you grew up.
0: Yeah, I guess the, the connection, I, I have to take a minute and and, mm-hmm. and make it even earlier, you know, because one mm-hmm. of the things that when I say moral obligation is one of the teachings, mm-hmm. uh, and on that, you know, something that I even, I'll I'll mention that later, but something that I even have today, a major role in what I did and how I did it and this sort of moral relation really came from this side of my mother. Mm -hmm. My mother was an educator in Peru, in Arequipa, in a small town in, in Arequipa for 40 years. And she is the one who really made sure that ahead of anything, her children, all five of us, had a good education. She was definitely devoted to that, you know. And mm-hmm. I being the youngest, I could see what she would do. And it's only later that, you know, I tended to reflect how is it? She obviously she never had any morals or any teachings, so to speak, just her behavior and her conduct. Mm-hmm. When I put that in, into, let's say, more specific teachings of today, I, I then realized what my mother had taught me right from the beginning, you know, from her mm-hmm. behavior. One of the things that, that she taught me was servant leadership. Mm-hmm. She was a humble woman, definitely devoted to serve the community where she lived she has taught probably all the women or most of the women in that town mm-hmm. along her 40 years, you know? So mm-hmm. that's, that's something that I would observe day in and day out, what she did. And the other thing, of course, you know, you, you have to imagine that as a teacher, she definitely was not making a huge amount of money. Right. But she loved what she did. So the passion for what you do is something that I observed from way back, you know, when I was just growing up. So Mm -hmm. that, I translate that to today and I said, you know, she really loved what she did. Otherwise, she wouldn't have lasted 40 years doing it. And this later connection to the moral obligation to go back is always doing the right thing and mm-hmm. one of the things that i had gotten to go to graduate school was a scholarship from the organization of american states and they were going to pay for me either way whether it was engineering or whether it was an mba but they said i we would like you to go back and work for at least two or three years in your country in sort of quote-unquote payment for this Mm -hmm. and you know there was no written contract or anything but it was the right thing to do so that's why you know Mm -hmm. it's the connection to how I chose an MBA as opposed to engineering because I wanted to go back and you know do what I was supposed to do.
1: Yeah and do the, the right thing. Absolutely. Yeah, well, and I think that you speak to, and I, I want to talk about some of these ideas, but it I, it sounds like now based on, on kind of what you're sharing, I can see where some of the other things that happen in your career come from that kind of observing. I think you make a great point that, you know, maybe it wasn't your mom teaching you specifically leadership, you know, ideas like specifically written down, but more of how she did things, I think is a great way. I think a lot of people in their organization, they learn from what their leaders, not just what they say, but what they
0: do. Absolutely. Role modeling. Right. Exactly. And so
1: you with with going back to peru was then png kind of what like was that more of you went back to peru and started looking for opportunities or like before you graduated you knew that's where you were going to go and and work how did png kind of come into the picture
0: oh yeah no that that came along we know it's uh right prior to graduation of course in looking for jobs i had three or four opportunities and obviously png was one of them and went to Cincinnati, interviewed uh, and all of that, and um, I have to say and this I've always said definitely it was not the the best of the offers of the three or four probably was actually the second or the even the third, mm-hmm. but the difference was the way they talked to me when I went to Cincinnati and interviewed and the people and you know what they said, and you know. The immediate feeling that you're getting something, you know, w- realistic, mm-hmm. honest, and uh, lots of principles behind what they would say. So it, it was the interviews that convinced me that that was the uh, the offer that I should take. So that's that's how I got. So I I, I went to Peru already to start with PNG, but already, knowing that I already had a job.
1: Mm, yeah. And I think that, I mean, you you referenced that point of like that it was going to be realistic. I think sometimes people are surprised, you know, at least my experience in P&G was getting there and, and immediately having real responsibility. Whereas some of my friends who started at companies, they were doing things where it was closer to like getting coffee for people versus, you know, coming into P&G, working on a, a, an actual project that needed to get done. And it was like, oh, if I didn't do it, even though I have, you know, I just started here as a new hire. If I don't do this, like it still has to get done. So having real experiences and then having good managers that that supported you
0: absolutely.
1: It sounds like with the you know, you mentioned here your mom was um, a teacher for forty years, so she must have loved it. You had a thirty year career at p and g. so is it is it safe to say you also enjoyed? Your experiences at PNG, whether it's you know from that brand assistant job to brand manager and, and oh, beyond. Oh yeah,
0: absolutely, absolutely. And and for I'm, you know speaking to that, uh, that definitely is one of the differences. I got to Peru, obviously very small subsidiary. So that's even the advantage of starting in a small place, small company, small subsidiary, where you get to do pretty much everything. Uh, because there is nobody else to do it. So as a brand assistant, I was already reporting to the associate advertising manager. So, you know, because there was no brand manager at the time. So yeah, I definitely enjoy that uh, early part of my career. learned a lot.
1: Yeah, and so you from there you continue to grow. And I'm curious because I, I think that sometimes people have this experience as well. How did you maintain visibility when working away from you know P and G's headquarters based in Cincinnati, Ohio? Like, how did you continue to get known within the organization? How do you go from a smaller, you know, say more say remote area? and still find your ways to, you know, get visibility with people, to get new opportunities? What did you do to to maintain those types of relationships? Well,
0: you know, that's the, of a a company, and obviously there are quite a few companies like that too, but P&G obviously uh, is unique in that respect, in that as long as you're doing a good job, as long as you're really enjoying what you're doing, and as long as you are not desperate to move up. People are watching you. And because of the responsibility we had, or we, you know, within PNG we have to grow our successors, there is no question there was already people, you know, looking at me mm-hmm. and making sure that I would have the right career path. So to tell you the truth, I wasn't worried about getting visibility, uh, you know, three or four four years after I was in Peru, actually four and a half, you know, one day my boss said, you know, we're going to send you to Cincinnati to train. And I said, fine, that's great. So I went to Cincinnati for a year and a half, returned, you know, who was watching me in Cincinnati? Of course, it must have been my boss where I was in food as a person, mm-hmm. as, as a matter of fact, in food and beverage. Went back to Peru and people were, continue to, to look after my career, so that's one of the one of the uh, advices I give young people, particularly those who I have talked to many times within p g or any other big company for that matter is don't be in a hurry just do your job well essentially assume what you're doing is what you're going to do for the rest of your career. something soon will happen because somebody is definitely looking at you, and if you concentrate on doing a good job and and delivering results, sooner rather than later, somebody's going to come and tell you this is your next step in your career. So don't be in a hurry. People are definitely paying attention to what you're doing. So I I wasn't in a hurry.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that sometimes, especially for, for people newer, like when they first graduate, I remember... My manager saying, okay, yeah, even if you don't love this role, you know, do it for three years and then we'll move on to something else. And I thought, I was thinking at the time, I was like, oh, three years seems so long. Uh, But then it's amazing how quickly that time kind of goes by. And and so, kind of speaking to those points that you talked about, of like, you know, focus on the work, do well, you found an interview where you talk about the value of delivering results, like that a good leader uh, has to pay attention to other things, but ultimately, he or she must realize that success is really judged by the results that are achieved. And is that what you're kind of talking about is like the, the results that they get, is that more important than, you know, the, the smooth quote unquote, smoothing with people. Is that, does that also oh, mean yeah. that profit is more important than other things? Like, what do you mean specifically by say results in that context?
0: Well, what I mean by results, and this is something that I definitely, I I've had several talks to young people on this and, what I say is at the end of the day, the only thing that counts is results. Now, results doesn't necessarily mean just profit, mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean volume, it doesn't necessarily mean share. It means whatever you are asked to do and you have promised to deliver in whatever mm-hmm. area you are in the business. You got your objectives, you got your goals. As long as you deliver, Or even better, if you Mm over-deliver, that's what I mean by results. And when I give my talks to young folks, I said, look, if you pay attention to what you do in results, all the other stuff that goes around, frankly, helps, but Mm -hmm. it's not sufficient. Yeah. In order to really get moving in your career, you have to deliver results wherever you are.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense, and, and and I like that clarity of getting clarity. So if you're if let's say you're mid career as a professional, what types of results would you be coaching people to have as their objectives and as their goals? Is it you know certainly delivering for the the business? Do you also throw in things like what they're doing to mentor other people or uh, even kind of their their work life balance or other things? What types of things should be going after? What goes under that results umbrella?
0: Well, under the results, in I mean, I'm, I'm speaking now for PNG. Of course, we have two main objectives and two main responsibilities. It's it's very simple, and you know, Bob Blanche, I think it was friend, uh, also ex PNG retired a long time ago. He used to say, in PNG, in order to advance in your career, you only need to do two things. Grow the business and grow your organization. That's it. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, obviously, there are a lot of subsets below that because, in order to grow the business, the higher you go, of course, the more responsibility you have to deliver against a strategy, put together a sound strategy, and execute on that. So, the higher the level, the more macro things that you have to bring into play and in the organization it's all of the things that you have mentioned meaning when you grow your organization you have to definitely nurture the talent that you have under you you have to help them you have to mentor them you have to be mindful of the work balance that they have you don't want people to get burned mm-hmm. so it all of that goes goes into the organization growth and again mid to higher level you have more people under you and therefore you are responsible for a lot more things the proper organization putting the right talent in the right places so but it but all of them really uh flow from these two things mm-hmm. grow the business and grow the organization yeah. lots of things below
1: yeah, I remember remember learning about that uh, while there as well and, and certainly throughout your career you managed to do both with a with the focus in Latin America. So during your time you know profits there increased 20 fold uh, the headquarters moved from Cincinnati to Caracas. Uh, you know management transitioned from having a lot of expats there to mostly then being hundred percent and like based from a Latin, Uh, kind of resources. And then to the point that you're even exporting talent in 1999. So kind of speaking to that build the organization piece for you, why was developing local talent so important?
0: Well, I guess at the time it was twofold. For one thing, Latin America being a young organization, we had to rely on a lot of expats. And as much as obviously within PNG we think very much alike there is no question uh, that if you are a local you identify a lot more with the culture and with the local consumer i mean that's by the way one of the re- the main reason why we moved the headquarters from cincinnati to caracas meaning in order to grow the business in latin america we said we have to be in latin america You don't grow it by remote control from Cincinnati. And so the next step was, okay, now we have lots of expansions to do. We have a lot of growth to do, but we need the local people to also flourish and identify more with the culture. So it was a twofold, really, Mm -hmm. purpose. And in the process, guess what? By growing the local talent, we were giving opportunity to very young folks. and mm-hmm. it proved the 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 point that if you have people young and not so seasoned, but you throw them in there, they will respond and they will deliver. And so, like you're saying, by nineteen ninety actually sorry but nineteen ninety five we already had pretty much all the general managers in the region were Latins, Mm -hmm. and we started exporting uh, talent. And by the way, that has continued even up to today. Mm -hmm. There are, Mm -hmm. you know, if you take R&D, there are a lot more R&D directors from Latin America, even though we've had a tough time here in the R&D center in Venezuela. There are a lot more R&D Latins, in the circuit outside of Latin America, whether it's in Japan or in China or in the U.S. or in Europe, than from places where we've had a lot more years, like the Japan Technical Center or the China Technical Center. And obviously mm-hmm. that goes with the culture too. The Latin mm-hmm. is very adaptable for to, to, to many circumstances. But the fact is that we gave them a chance, and you know that was one of the ideas we wanted to develop people from the area.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, and, and sounds sounds great. It, it like can understand the the value of it. And so, what? How did you actually develop the town? So it sounds like a big part of it was, you know, giving people opportunity and them kind of rising up to the occasion. Anything else that you implemented or did as a? Individual or is it an organization that really helped to develop that talent?
0: Well, uh, obviously we follow the P and uh, disciplines, and and we didn't we didn't do anything. Uh, it, it was getting into the subsidiaries, definitely improving the recruiting, and we made a point of all of us in general managers would go once or twice a year to universities to recruit. So we made a lot of mm-hmm. uh, emphasis on the fact that P&G was on the growth path. We needed the top 10% of the people graduating and we were offering fast careers. Mm-hmm. And that sort of like tend to be a virtuous circle because the moment they saw that here comes to talk to me A general manager who is barely 32 years old, uh, from Puerto Rico or from Peru, and so they're seeing that yeah we're delivering on what we're talking. So Mm -hmm. that attracted even more people. And where we had a little bit more of an issue was in places where we were just getting in, like in Brazil, you know, where we started from Mm -hmm. scratch by acquiring a company. There we went a bit outside of the usual and we actually recruited three or four people who were already working for other companies and we got them in because we said this is a bit of a gamble but it should help us in order to jump start the process because we needed somebody with a little bit of experience to also train the newcomers. One of those examples is you know turned out to be a great executive of P&G is Melanie Hilly. We got Melanie out of uh, S.E. Johnson. So, you know, we brought her in and she was already seasoned. And obviously the rest is uh, history. But uh, it was the same thing we did in Argentina. But for the most, it was just making sure people understood that P&G was there to develop them. And here we are. Come with us, and you know you'll have a great career. And you know, uh, for them, it, it worked very well.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and it sounds like I'd like that idea of of showing them, just like you had talked about with your mom and the way that she, you know, lived the values you talked about. The organization was living those values by having younger GMs going and and showing, not just telling, that this is the case. So I think people could could see that, which I think is absolutely is very absolutely valuable. yes. And so I'm I'm curious. There's, so there's a, a couple of great stories about you in uh, John Pepper's What Really Matters book. And, you know, one kind of talks about some business that was lost in Mexico because, you know, culturally, you not being willing to, to play the game of of give gifting a car to a potential client, <laughs> uh, <laughs> later letting go some top people because of of a conflict of interest. And so how do you balance, you know, this focus as you talked earlier about servant leadership and values-based leadership? But with also this, like the getting results, because you could say, oh, some of these top people, even though, you know, conflict of interest, they still are going to help you get really good results. So where does kind of this the values based part of come into this this equation of thinking about delivering?
0: Well, you know, uh, that's the beauty, actually. You know, I love this company and PNG. is made so clear right from the beginning. And as you can imagine, you know, Latin America is not an easy place for preaching that kind of a discipline, but we made sure that in order to sleep, you know, very peacefully at night, you had to make sure that one, you recruited the right people. In other words, people who had absolutely no qualm with principles, and you can detect that very early on. Mm -hmm. And you just repeat and repeat and repeat. And once again, show by example. We always said in Latin America, you cannot, of all places, Latin America, you cannot give in even once for one minute because the moment you set the precedent, you're lost. That's it. Whereas if you never do, People will understand, and you know in the story of of John in Mexico, yeah that's when I, I had just gotten all of Latin america you know to, to run that was 80, 1985. and my first three months were actually four months were a disaster because the general manager from Mexico called me, you know this guy it's it's a government account by the way, mm-hmm. and they won't buy anything until we get a and he was. Honestly, just informing me because he knew and I knew what the answer was. So, Mm God, Solomon said, no sales. I went to John. And once again, I was just essentially informing him of the sad news. But Mm -hmm. there was not even for half a second, the thought crossed our minds that we would yield to that kind of a thing. So... What we have learned in Latin America is, which is what we did there, is you find somebody who knows us very well, who somehow has access to those folks that are, you know, requesting these kinds of wild things, mm-hmm. and let them know that there is absolutely no way that PNG would ever yield to anything like that. And you know, they doubt it. Uh sooner or later they realize that that's the case and they just come back. And that's what happened in Mexico. And of course, use that and other instances to show that there is absolutely no compromise whatsoever under any circumstance. The, uh, the story of the R&D folks, by the way, it wasn't in Mexico. That, that one, John, mm-hmm. got a bit, uh, the, the place got confused. But that was when I first got to Spain. It was in Spain. You know. we had to get rid of pretty much almost almost the whole r and d department because of a major conflict of interest, but again, no compromise whatsoever uh, that That was definitely you know something that needed to be done, and that's it. But as I said, the main thing is you can't set a precedent. Mm-hmm. you have to really do the right thing every day every moment, on every occasion. Yeah, and, and really live those
1: those values that uh, are written, right? So the values aren't just what's written up on a wall, but actually
2: the the actions that you take and, and live them. I really like that. And now a word from our sponsor. Today we're talking to alumni entrepreneur Ann Chambers, co-founder and CEO of 17 Ways, a B2B marketplace for purpose-driven brands. Ann, I guess I gotta ask, is this kind of related to the UN Sustainable Development Goals?
3: Well, yeah, it actually is. We actually call it an SDG impact marketplace. So it's totally related to the sustainable development goals, which, you know, are the goals are a collection of 17 global goals that were identified by the United Nations in 2015. And um, they're kind of a blueprint to achieve a more sustainable future for everybody. So the goals include things like no hunger, zero poverty, Good health and well-being, climate action—they really run the gamut of all the issues that need to be addressed in order for us all to have a better future. It's interesting. Paul Pullman, who used to be the CEO of Unilever, and he's actually a P&G alum as well. Paul says that addressing the Sustainable Development Goals is the greatest economic opportunity of our lifetime. So we're really excited about being in the space. It's very cool.
2: That—that's really awesome. Uh, I guess. How would a company even get started working with with a platform like yours?
3: Well, if you think about it, we're kind of like a Match.com and an Upwork. So from the Upwork standpoint, we uh, make it really easy for enterprise, big companies like a CPG company, Unilever, P&G, you name it, they can get on the platform and using 17 ways, they can just have one single vendor where they can identify lots of new suppliers without having to create new vendor opportunities for each one of them. Um, So that makes it really easy. And then I think a really important thing for the enterprise companies, the big big companies, is we create great reporting for them at the end of the year. So that's also important for their CSR reports.
2: And how many members do you have on the platform?
3: We have right now over 200 members, and they are mainly, right now they're mainly B Corps, which I uh, love. We're a certified B Corp too. And a lot of them are women-owned. So it's been a really interesting thing to see who's who the early adopters are.
2: What are the types of companies that are on the platform? Can you give some examples?
3: Well, I love all my children the same, so I'm not going to promote any company right now. But there's everything from incredible food companies to um, branding companies, consulting companies. We've got a lot of solar energy all the things that you might expect you'd find in a sustainable collection of, of companies.
2: This is really cool. So, how can people find out more about 17 Ways?
3: You can find out more at 17ways.co.
2: Awesome. Best of luck and thanks so much.
3: Raman, thanks so much. I really appreciate it.
2: And now back to our show. So,
1: you've been, uh, you, you retired from PNG in 2004. You're on the uh, you're a board director for. Uh, the Kroger Company and Gap Inc., anything else that you're using to, to kind of fill your time? What do you, you know, what do you spend your days doing now, 15 years post P&G? Well,
0: you know, it's one of those where I'm also, I mean, soon because of age requirements that I will need to leave those boards. Mm-hmm. One pretty soon, Kroger. The other one, by the way, Gap Extended. They wanted me to stay over. It was 72. So they asked, they changed the statue and they said, if I, we change, would you stay? So, so I stay three more years. But in my mind, the one thing that I don't, I will never say is I will retire. <laughs> the, word, the word retire. And by the way, it doesn't mean uh, eight days, eight, eight hours per day work. Mm-hmm. It's just, you have to be active somehow. Mm -hmm. It's never late to learn anything, okay? So my thing will be I need to find other activities, whatever Mm -hmm. they are. It doesn't have to be work, you know? When somebody says it's too late to start learning something, I said that's, uh, you know, pardon the French, but that's BS because Mm -hmm. there's always time to do. All you got to do is just look at, you know, Einstein. At age 60 or more, started to learn ancient Greek, okay, which is not easy. Uh, Moses let the Jews out of uh, Egypt when he was 80. So there's always a chance to, to do something. So I'm working on, you know, w- what comes after my boards. And there are plenty of projects, uh, particularly as they relate to Latin America. One thing, by the way, beyond my activities in just business, whether it's getting companies and, you know, getting them better and then selling them, is I'm definitely, once again, because of my mother, my wife and I have a foundation that helps underserved uh, children in Venezuela and in Peru. So we have a, a, a private foundation that actually carries my mother's name. And we do that. And that keeps me busy, too. Related to that education, I'm also involved in the uh, Youth Orchestra of the Americas. It's a Washington-based entity that, through music, develops leaders from all the places in Latin America to help them get some training and then go back to their countries and get there be their role models for other youngsters. And we have quite a few already doing something like that in Peru and here in Venezuela. So there will be plenty of stuff to do, continue to play my, Mm -hmm. you know, my sports, tennis. You know, one of the things that it was interesting here, it was what is one surprising fact about me that surprises people? Uh, It it was interesting because I guess one is a lot of people get surprised when I tell them that I was an All-America NCAA soccer player out of uh, Cal in 1968. (laughs) They say, oh, really? You know, that's, uh, that's a fun fact. That
1: is a fun fact. That was actually going to be my, my next question as we start to move <laughs> into the rapid fire round. I mean, just to close out, I love that perspective that you can always be learning. There's always something new as a way to, you know, stay active and to, you know, no matter the age. And I love the examples that you gave of, of different people that you can, can be moving on to, to something. And so,
0: yeah, we're, we're moving into kind of some of the, the rapid fire rounds. So that's, that answers it. I'm picking up as my next uh, task, by the way, I'm, I want to master Italian. Because my wife is Italian-Venezuelan. We go to Italy quite a bit. I said, I got to really study that one. So that's my next project on my own activities. That is impressive.
1: The only Italian word I know is abrogato. Is that, is, okay. that, yeah, is that Portuguese? No, that's no, actually that, Portuguese. Yeah, that's Portuguese. I know. That, yeah. I'm terrible. I'm, I'm serious. <laughs> I only speak English. So you're correcting me. So you know more, way more Italian than I do. Um, impressive. So learning Italian. All right. So fun. So NCAA soccer player at Berkeley as well as, as a fact that surprises. I like that. Um, next kind of rapid fire question. So you spent years working in the snacks and beverage. Uh, kind of industry, do you have a a current favorite snack or or beverage that you enjoy?
0: Uh, Yeah. Uh, Obviously, these days you are into healthy snacks and healthy beverages. So uh, I tend to just go with any of the, uh, you know, wheat, uh, gluten-free snacks, but Mm. I'm not for the Cheetos, Doritos type, by the way, you know, so, you know, tend to be more on the healthy side, honestly.
1: Okay. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a good, that's better to be. I'm, I'm still, still a big Pringles fan.
0: Well, uh, oh, obviously, yeah. you know, Pringles, it was, you know, one of the things that, you know, very quickly you mentioned, uh, is there anything that you learned in one of your experiences that didn't go so well as a mm-hmm. lesson? You know, that I, I, I Pringles comes to mind because not too many people remember that in 2000, we were about to make a joint company with Coke. Mm. I had to sponsor that so that we would have one JV that had the beverages from Coke, Minute Maid and others. And we were going to put in Pringles to use the distribution of Coke. And we were going to put the R&D Mm-hmm. uh at the last minute they backed out even though we had been dealing with Doug Daft who was the uh, CEO uh and the guy who was leading who came from CNN was Steve Hire. and so what's the lesson there mm-hmm. even though we were dealing with the CEO and AG and I flew with him to Europe to get it past the uh, European Community. And even though John Pepper and I had already, you know, announced it on TV and everything, they backed out. And the lesson is we were not negotiating with the right person. We thought the CEO Mm. was calling the shots, but it was Don Keogh, a guy, a member of the board, who actually was not terribly enthusiastic with the idea and convinced Stephen Heyer not to do it. So the lesson is. Whenever you're always, you're negotiating anything, make sure that you are dealing with the ultimate decision maker, because certainly in our case, the CEO was not.
1: You know. Yeah, which is, it seems a bit surprising. You would think CEO should be comfortable, right? But doing, doing the research and knowing that. Yeah, I like it. Very good, excellent, so as as we wrap up, we have one last question and and I'm very curious your your answer is you know, given your your track record of of developing people and encouraging people what's if you think about the next generation of leaders, what's one piece of advice or challenge that you would give to them kind of going forward? Um, I would
0: say you know there's you know, rapid fire couple of things. Number one, I would love, I would go back essentially to pretty much where I started from. Mm -hmm. Love what you do every day. Unless you love what you do, you're not going to be happy doing what you're doing and therefore and that reflects on to others. You know, I, I, I normally in the talks that I give, I have one that that Confucius said, you know, if you love what you do, you will never work another day in your life. Mm -hmm. And that honestly is definitely a big advice. Mm -hmm. And the other one is practice servant leadership. These days you get, you know, because of all the things that you see around, you know, startups and people coming out of MBAs and thinking that they can be, General managers, the first day they get into the job. No, you got to really take your time and learn and learn and learn. (laughs) And by doing that, you're serving the organization, you're being humble, you're practicing leadership, and things will develop for you. So, no arrogance, no big, you know, egos. That to me is the sign of a, of an excellent, uh, leader. So those would be the two things yeah. that I would be with.
1: Yeah. I love, I love that advice too, to love what you do and, and to practice service leadership. Uh, I think our, uh, servant leadership, I think is, uh, two fantastic things for people to, to keep in mind, no matter where they are in their career and where they're at it next. Well, Jorge, this has been a fantastic interview. Thank you so much for, Joining us on the P and G Alumni Podcast, we really appreciate it.
0: Thanks, thank you, Drew. I mean, this is this is really a pleasure talking to uh, all the folks that you'll be uh, reaching. You know, uh, hopefully, there'll be a lot of P and G alumni as well. Yep, absolutely.
1: Very good. So we are all set there. That was a fantastic interview. Thank you for, um, I really appreciated the the stories and uh, perspective. And you clearly did your research on some of the questions. I love that you're able to bring in, hey, I thought about this and here's a great response to that. So thank you.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the questions that you had there, you know one way or another are connected to either some of the talks that I've given to young folks or experiences that I've preached around. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a chance, by the way, uh, just two weeks ago, right before the uh, whole coronavirus locked out and everything on March the 8th, that was a Sunday, uh, I was with John Pepper, with Ed Arts and with Gordon Brunner. Oh uh, wow! We were visiting this time in Vero Beach, which is where both John and Gordon have a place. And Ed came. We had that. That was sort of like a follow up because Ed Ed is not feeling well these days. He's mm-hmm. he's a bit weak. You know, he's he's got Parkinson. Mm. So one of the things is getting our, getting together and sharing stories. Man, let me tell you—you know—he may have Parkinson, but his head is as alert and bright as ever. And he turns ninety in about a week. Uh, I, I'm sure that you're gonna get him for the podcast. I know he's writing; he's doing his oral history. Oh, okay. he's talking to yeah. Uh, so we were hours, literally the whole. Just it started out right with lunch. And we went through dinner, and we were still talking stories, you know, so a lot of these are very much uh top of mind
1: yeah, well, and that's I mean that's incredible for you all to have gotten a chance to uh uh to one that you're staying connected and that you recently were able to connect in that way for sure
0: oh yeah, because you know it's it's uh you know I, it, it was by coincidence that i joined. I met John Pepper way back when, even before I had anything to do with him. Mm -hmm. You know, he was coming back from Europe and I was actually leaving Cincinnati in my first training. And he came to the same, he was going to take over the temporary housing that I had in Indian Creek in Cincinnati. No, oh, really? So he came over to see the place. <laughs> to make sure <laughs> that you'd kept it in good repair. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, and obviously afterwards, and, and it was at arts. Actually, I was reminding him, you know, I wasn't gonna say this, but when I was in Peru when I was a general manager, I had only been there about a year and a half. This is uh, early 80. Uh, and my boss it was Bill Coleman, he said. Uh, a gentleman called Ed who's head in Europe wants to talk to you. Uh, and I said, gee, I don't know him. And what does he want? And he's the guy who, who phoned me or he wanted me to go to Spain. Ah. By the way, we didn't get to talk Spain, maybe some other time. Mm-hmm. But to me, Spain was the biggest experience in my life when it comes to really you know, growing in all aspects of leadership and managing a country. But that's a story for another day. (laughs) Uh, So I I asked Ed a couple of times, actually, even now he was writing. I said, why did you call me? I mean, you know, I was in Peru. He said, of course, you were already in the radar. Mm -hmm. And I had decided, you know, look at this. This is before I did it. So you could say I sort of follow his example. Mm -hmm. He said he had been told that there was no way to develop local Europeans to manage each of the countries. And he said, you guys are wrong. I'm going to do it. So he got Harald Eisman to do Germany, and he got Sandro Baldini in, in Italy, and he had uh, Michael Allen in England. And he said, "I didn't have anybody in Spain because we had John Asher, who was a Canadian, and the people there were still too young." He said, "I got this guy in the radar who is in Peru, same culture, Spanish-speaking. That's close enough. <laughs> so that's why he phoned me." <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the rest. So that's... I went there, and the rest of history. Oh, that's very
1: funny. And I mean, it sounds like a good, uh, a good, that it worked out well, that he was he was spot on in terms of finding someone that could be a good experience for that.
0: It it was, yeah, it was, you know, it would really work out well for me as well, of course. Yeah, that is,
1: that is fantastic. Well, Jorge, again, thank you so much for, for taking the time, especially as you know, things changed and, and everything with while being in Venezuela, we really appreciate it. Um, so we've got this recorder. We're going to, we send it out to have it, um, we work with our production group to uh to do the editing and everything and then we're looking to launch in probably late April. We don't know the exact order of the episodes yet but we'll certainly keep you posted so that you can um have a listen to it, you can share it with other people as well. Absolutely
0: might. Drew, Anytime. and uh stay safe. Yep. Take care. You as Come well. Don't out in the streets, uh, you know, New York is is tough these days so be it careful. Is, yep.
1: We're going to, we're going to stay indoors for the time being. So great. Excellent. Super. Thanks so much for all right.
0: Bye. All the best. Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: And that's our show. Like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform for show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned or requests for sponsorship. Visit com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter
2: at PG alum pod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the p and Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former p committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com.
1: Now, here's a preview of next week's episode.
3: It's more than politics.
0: Uh, At the time, we were going through uh, cabinet meetings, sometimes daily, sometimes weekly on Ebola. And uh, President Obama was getting um, advice at the time, the leading Republican candidate for president. He was saying, close the borders, don't let people in. And all the medical professionals around the table said, don't do that because the people go underground. And we sent the Army Medical Corps to West Africa and we literally tried to uh, and the, and the Ebola virus in West Africa. So it couldn't come here. And it reminded me of the principle I learned in the army, but it's also principle I learned in business or at the VA, which is you run to the gunfire.
1: That's it for this week. I've been Andrew Tarvin.
2: And I'm still Rumman Seckel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the P&G Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.